1948, James Houston uh, wrote the screenplay for and directed a film called The Treasure of the Sierra Madre. It starred three men, Humphrey Bogart, a name you'll recognize probably, Walter Houston and Tim Holt. And these three men were played three down-on-their-luck prospectors. It was a Western movie. They were out in the West, and uh, they were relatively unsuccessful in searching for gold. One day, out of the blue, another man came, a fourth man they did not know, and he joined them. And as they were getting acquainted, before actually they got to know anything about him, uh, these four now prospectors were set upon by bandits, and a gun battle ensued. Bang, bang, bang. Well, they successfully chased the bandits away, but in the process, this fourth man was shot, fatally shot. Following the battle, when things had calmed down, the three men gathered around this fourth man to invest. Who is this guy? They, they reached into his pockets, searched his, his clothes, and they found inside one of his inside pockets, they found a, a picture of a, a relatively attractive young woman and a letter, a letter addressed to James Cody. This is what the letter said. Dear Jim, your letter just arrived. It was such a relief to get word after so many months of silence. I realize, of course, that there aren't any mailboxes that you can drop a letter out in out there in the wild, but that doesn't keep me from worrying about you. Little Jimmy is fine, but he misses his daddy almost as much as I do. He keeps asking, when's daddy coming home? You say if you do not make a real find this time, you will never go again. I cannot begin to tell you how my heart rejoices at those words, if you really mean them. Now I feel for you to tell you I've never thought that any material treasure, no matter how great, is worth the pain of these long separations. The country is especially lovely this year. It's been a perfect spring, warm rains and hardly any frost. The fruit trees are all in bloom. The upper orchard looks aflame and the lower looks the lower like after a snowstorm. Everybody looks forward to big crops. I do hope that you are back for the harvest. Of course, I'm hoping you will at last strike it rich. It is high time for luck to start smiling upon you. But just in case she doesn't, remember, we've already found life's real treasure. Forever yours, Callie. Now, most of you haven't been around the church long enough to recognize where I could go after uh, reading a letter like that to you. This story could perfectly introduce a sermon from the Bible uh, on one of the great marriage or family passages. In fact, I could spend time right now building this contrast uh, in the life of James Cody. He could have been at home with his wife and son, and, and the life instead he chose which was wandering around trying to get rich. And I could build that, that contrast. And I would say many, many very true things. The Bible warns us that the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And the Bible says that if you find a wife, you find a good thing and a blessing from God. Proverbs says that. And I could affirm many things, many things about family and home that we would appreciate and welcome and feel rightly in some instances guilty and, and uh, things in many ways that need to be said and that I have said and that I will say again. But if I went that direction this morning, I might not be giving you the whole picture. At least not the whole picture that the Bible paints for us. In fact, I might be lulling you into a fantasy that this movie scene embraces and one that we are tempted to believe. I don't know if James Houston was aware of it or not when he wrote this screenplay, but he, he really was highlighting two different paths of life 
that, that's not all that he was doing. He was doing more than that. There was, of course, we want to say there's the good path with that home and family, and then there's the bad path looking for money. The, the scene, scene seems to say, don't be foolish enough to put your hope in finding money. Instead, put your hope in family. The problem is, that's partially true. It's a good message. It's something that people need to hear, but it's not complete. It may be the dream that we like, the dream of conservative America, the dream of Norman Rockwell nostalgia, but it, that is still just a dream. I want to show you that from a passage of the Bible this morning. Uh, I want to help uh, you understand this as the Bible lays out uh, where we find ultimate and genuine pleasure and fulfillment. And if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to turn with me to the book of Leviticus, chapter 15. Leviticus chapter 15. Um, you'll find Leviticus uh, in uh, your Bible. It's the third book in the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, and then Leviticus. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, if you don't have a Bible and you want to use one of the Pew Bibles, you'll find that on page 114. In fact, if you don't have a Bible at all, uh, feel free as you leave this morning to take one from the Pew uh, in, as a gift from us. We'd be pleased to have you leave with a copy of the Scriptures. Um, we're working our way through this worship manual in the Old Testament. That's what the book of Leviticus is. It was given to a people that are far removed from us, far removed from us in time, in culture, in spiritual circumstances. Uh, there are many things in this book that are strange. And yet we worship the same God. Uh, and we are finding out as we learn this, as we learn what's in this book, we're discovering what it says about how we approach Him, how we know Him, how we follow Him. Along the way, we've seen repeatedly that if we are to know God, we are dependent upon sacrifice. Human beings cannot live in the presence of God uh, on their own if we we are dependent upon blood. We come through blood to Him. Uh, we learn that from the number of animal sacrifices that are at the beginning of, of this book. Sacrifices that, thankfully, we're no longer required to present. We've also learned that we need a mediator. We have to come through blood. We also need a mediator, someone to represent us to God. And both of these things are related to the central message of the book of Leviticus. God is holy. He is unique in power and love and wisdom, and goodness, and He is rightly to be feared, to be revered. I, I've spoken to you before about uh, my experiences growing up near Niagara Falls. Uh, thousands, maybe if not millions of people, visit Niagara Falls every year. And if you were to go to Niagara Falls, you would see all over the place walls and fences and borders and walkways, all they're designed to keep you safe. And people enjoy the beauty when they go to Niagara Falls. But the first Europeans to explore western New York uh, were not overwhelmingly impressed at first with the majesty of Niagara Falls. They actually were terrified. You could hear the falls ten miles away uh, before electric motors and gasoline engines came and polluted the soundscape. But you could hear Niagara Falls from ten miles away, and, and, and people, when they came upon it, they were terrified. They were terrified at the sight of the depth of the gorge and the roar of the, the waves, the water. And, and it, was, it was at the same time terrifying and beautiful. 
And as God reveals himself in the Old Testament, we meet a God who is at the same time beautiful and worthy of our reverent fear. Now, these last several weeks, we have been walking through a section of Leviticus that presents what's been called the purity code. These are instructions concerning the ritual categories of clean and unclean. Remember, the issue here is not hygiene. This passage is not, these um, chapters are not about whether or not you need more Purell or more Pledge. It's not about hygiene. It's about your ritual condition. Uh, uh, Clean and unclean laws were deeply embedded in the culture of the ancient Near East, We don't have anything like it, I don't think, in in our culture. But the the categories created separation, and what they were supposed to do is to keep people from rushing into God's presence thoughtlessly, carelessly. He is to be revered. God is holy, and we are not. Now, chapter 15 is the last section of the Purity Code, and it is a very personal chapter. Uh, It has to do with bodily discharges. As as Creator, God has the right to order the very personal lives of His followers. And He does so in this chapter. We're going to see how He does so even more when we get in a few weeks to Leviticus chapter 18. Now, as is the case with all of these, uh, any section of the Scripture, what we want to do is we want to understand what it says, and we want to understand what did this mean to those who originally got this. For the Israelites 3,500 years ago who received the book of Leviticus, how did this change their life? What did it do to them or for them? And then what we want to do is we want to understand the underlying principle. What truths are about God are here? What does this say about living in the world God made? Um, uh, for, that is timeless for all of us. Now, here, here in Leviticus 15 is a specific application of a timeless truth to a specific people and specific condition and specific culture. But what's the timeless truth and how does it speak to us in our culture? That's our goal every time we look into the Bible. What I want to do is I want to walk through this text this morning and then I'm going to return to the theme that I mentioned a few minutes ago about fulfillment and um, uh, ultimate joy. Now, let's just a brief overview as we pick up this chapter, and it might be more obvious on uh, this overview, might be a little bit more obvious on that note sheet that's in your bulletin. Uh, This is a very ordered, very patterned passage. It's about bodily discharges and uncleanness. And again, it's very balanced. It begins by speaking about irregular male discharges, then regular male discharges, then regular female discharges, then irregular female discharges. Regular, uh, irregular, regular, regular, irregular. Uh, And uh, for the irregular discharges, we'll see this, uh, after they were finished, there was a sacrifice that was to be made, the same sacrifice for men and women. There is a symmetry here that is intended to remind the reader that God made male and female both in his image. And they complement one another. And with this pattern here, the emphasis is actually on the center of the passage, which is in verse 18, which talks about sexual intimacy. We'll read that in just a few minutes. This great blessing of God, it's here at the center. The other emphasis in the passage is actually outside the pattern in the conclusion. Look in verse 31. As the text says, you have to know whether you're clean or unclean. Here's why. Verse 31 of chapter 15. You must keep the Israelites separate from things that make them unclean, so they will not die in their uncleanness for defiling my dwelling place, 
which is among them. God's great gift of sexual intimacy speaks to His majesty and His beauty. And this warning about this being a life and death issue speaks to reverence. Remember, God is majestic in beauty. We approach Him, though, with reverent fear. Both of those things are are present in this passage. Now, now, (laughs) let's move uh, through the text here. The first 15 verses are about irregular male discharges. That's something I never thought I'd ever say behind the pulpit, but let's keep going here. Verse 1, very personal passage. The Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Speak to the Israelites and say to them, When any man has an, has an unusual bodily discharge, such a discharge is unclean. Whether it continues flowing from his body or is blocked, it will make him unclean. This is how his discharge will bring about uncleanness. Frankly here, I think uh, the Word of God here is speaking about a bodily discharge related to a sexually transmitted disease. That's what's going on in the passage. Now, let's keep going in verse 4. Any bed the man with a discharge lies on will be unclean, and anything he sits on will be unclean. Anyone who touches his bed must wash their clothes and bathe with water, and they will be unclean till evening. Whoever sits on anything that the man with a discharge sat on must wash their clothes and bathe with water, and they will be unclean till evening. Whoever touches the man who has a discharge must wash their clothes and bathe with water, and they will be unclean till evening. If the man with a discharge spits on anyone who is clean, one wonders how often that happened, but... Uh, If any man with a discharge spits on anyone who is clean, they must wash their clothes and bathe with water, and they will be unclean till evening. Everything the man sits on when riding will be unclean, and whoever touches any of the things that were under him will be unclean till evening. Whoever picks up these things must wash their clothes and bathe with water, and they will be unclean till evening. Now, notice here that this is a unique type of uncleanness in the Bible. We have spent, over the last few weeks, we've talked about eating unclean animals in Leviticus 11 and and uncleanness after pregnancy in 12 and uncleanness and skin diseases in 13 and 14, now uncleanness with bodily discharges. And each of the uncleannesses have a certain flavor to them, a little bit different emphasis. You remember, uh, a woman who gave birth was unclean, but she stayed in her home and she was not unclean. When she touched someone, it wasn't contagious. In Leviticus 13 and 14, if you had a skin condition that made you unclean, you had to leave the community. You couldn't stay in your home like a woman who just given birth. You had to leave and go outside the, 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 uh, the, the camp. Now, here what we have is we have an uncleanness that's contagious. So that if an unclean person touches something, that becomes unclean. And then if you touch it, you become unclean. It's a contagious uncleanness. It's a different sort of uncleanness going on here. Some, some speculate that if this is referring to a disease, maybe there's a hygiene emphasis, and maybe that's why he's talking about contagious uncleanness here. Possibly. Did you notice how often washing with water is, is part of the emphasis here at the end? End of the day, wash with water. Again, this is not about being uh, clean, not about getting out your loofah and making sure you're clean. The emphasis here is ritual cleanness. Lots of washing here. Which, when John the Baptist showed up and he commanded people, repent and be baptized, it made sense to these Jews because they knew about washing and the symbolic emphasis of washing. 
That actually continues in verse 11 with washing with your hands. Jesus had a dispute with the Pharisees once about their uh, disciples who were not washing their hands properly according to tradition that developed from verse 11. Look what it says. Anyone with the, um, anyone the man with a discharge touches without rinsing his hands with water must wash their clothes and bathe with water and they will be unclean till evening. A clay pot that the man touches must be broken, and any wooden article is to be rinsed with water. Again, contagious uncleanness. Now, verses 13 and following here, we have the sacrifice. When the irregular discharge goes away, you wait seven days to make sure it's really gone, and then offer a sacrifice. The same sacrifices are commanded for women in verses 28 through 30. When a man is cleansed from his discharge, he is to count off seven days for his ceremonial cleansing. He must wash his clothes and bathe himself with fresh water and will be clean. On the eighth day, he must take two doves or two young pigeons and come before the Lord to the entrance of the tent of meeting and give them to the priest. The priest is to sacrifice them, the one for a sin or purification offering and the other for a burnt offering. In this way, he will make atonement before the Lord for the man because of his discharge." There's the sacrifice, blood and a priest, blood and a mediator. Now we move to regular discharges, and it's about to get more personal. Verse 16, when a man has an emission of semen, he must bathe his whole body with water, and he will be unclean till evening. Any clothing or leather that has semen on it must be washed with water, and it will be unclean till evening. And now verse 18, puzzling. When a man has sexual relations with a woman and there is an emission of semen, both of them must bathe with water and they will be unclean till evening. Why do sexual relations make you unclean? Is it because it's bad? Is God trying to discourage sexual intimacy in a marriage? Does the Bible have a low view of sex? This is not the case at all. In fact, if you read the Bible consistently, it has a very, very high view of sexual intimacy. The Song of Songs celebrates the joy and beauty of marital love. In 1 Corinthians 7, husbands and wives are commanded not to, not to rob one another of sexual pleasure. Hebrews 13 talks about how the fact that um, sexual pleasure, the marriage bed is to be held in honor by all people. Sex is God's good gift. If that's the truth, then why... Does it make you unclean? Uh, Did it make you unclean? Um, Here's three ways I think this passage would affect life in Israel. In general, this verse would have the emphasis of restraining sexual intimacy. Uh, And here's, here's some practical ways that this would show up. First of all, this protected women during warfare. It protected women during warfare. I think it was General Sherman. He gets the credit for saying it, but other people have said it. War is hell, right? War is hellish. And he was right. And history speaks of how often during warfare, women suffered abuse from soldiers. This was particularly true in ancient, the ancient Near East, ancient pagan soldiers were often guilty of defeating the army, invading the city, and abusing the women. But an Israelite soldier, in order for him to fight or continue fighting, he had to be clean which meant that when an Israelite soldier invaded a town and and they overtook it, they could not touch the women. They had to leave the women alone so they could continue 
fighting. This, this rule would protect women during warfare. Number two, it discouraged prostitution. It discouraged prostitution. Despite the fact that the Israelites had the Ten Commandments with all of its prohibitions of adultery, there were still prostitutes in ancient Israel. And, and since, due to their activities, they would be continually unclean, uh, cut off from worship, this would discourage prostitution. Third, and perhaps most importantly, we're going to come back to this in a minute, this command separated sex and worship. It separated sex and worship. This is strange. This is not the way we're inclined to think, but follow me here for a minute. Remember that the Israelites were about to, at this time, enter Canaan. And the ancient Canaanites, for them, as it was for the Romans and the Greeks, believed that sex was a part of worship. As part of their religious worship sites, they would build platforms. Whenever uh, you read in the Bible about high places, this would be one of the platforms that they would build, high on the mountains. And they would put next to one of these platforms an Asherah pole. You read that in the Old Testament too. And an Asherah pole was like a totem pole, similar, except it did not have... Um, animal figures on it, but it had a nude uh, woman on it, on the Asherah pole carved into it. And the Canaanites believed uh, when they worshipped that they needed to go and hire a cult prostitute and have sexual relations. And they thought that if the gods saw them having sex, they would be motivated to send rain on the earth. That's very strange, isn't it? Very foreign to us. Um, there are cults and New Age groups in our world today that put worship and sex together. This is not a completely unknown phenomenon here in our culture. But it was, it was uh, prevalent. It was the main way that people worshipped in Canaan and a frequent way that people worshipped in Rome and in Greece. Now this principle here, this principle of verse 18, clearly communicated to the Israelites that the God they worshipped was not like the gods of the Canaanites. The gods of the Canaanites may have appreciated public pornography, but the God of the Bible, the God who created sex, means it to be a private covenant uh, pleasure for a husband and a wife. Sex and worship do not go together. That's the principle that's being communicated here, and we're going to come back to that in just a few minutes. Let, let's continue with the passage, though, shall we? Here, verse 19. Uh, regular female discharges. When a woman has her regular flow of blood, the impurity of her monthly period will last seven days, and anyone who touches her will be unclean until evening. Now, I wonder if that sounds fair to you. Um, is this law consigning women to be unclean for 25% of the time, seven days a month? Actually, um, maybe 50% of the time during the, period, the time of your period, plus another seven days. 50% of the time being unclean, not allowed to go to worship. This is, another, is this a confirmation to us here again, uh, that the old canard that God hates women, Right? Probably not. See, many Bible scholars speculate that during this ancient period of time, most women did not menstruate on a monthly basis, not because physiology has changed, but because of the high value of childbearing in this culture. Women were pregnant often, and, and they did not wean their children until they were two or three years old. So monthly periods were not really monthly. Just like a man's uh, irregular discharge was a contagious 
uncleanness, a woman's regular discharge was contagious. That's the emphasis here in verses 20 and following. Um, anything she lies on during your period will be unclean. Anything she sits on will be unclean. Anyone who touches her bed will be unclean. There's contagious uncleanness here. Now, notice how this restriction would interrupt a woman's normal tasks. She couldn't do all of the work that she normally would. Otherwise, she would be spreading uncleanness everywhere. Honey, you're going to make the bed today. No, I can't touch it. Uh, that's uh, what, what verses 20 and following. Now, just in, clay, in case anybody here is inclined to use this chapter as an excuse to avoid anything or take any privileges, these laws are not binding on us. Uh, some of you have been to Bill Gothard seminars before, and uh, he advocates the abstinence during this period of time, just like the book of Deuteronomy does. That's an illegitimate use of the Old Testament. Specific commands for a specific group during a specific period of time. This is the legislation for the Israelites. Now, there's washing prescribed. Just like there's been washing all the way through, there's washing prescribed for a woman at the end of this seven-day period of uncleanness. And that's probably what Bathsheba was doing when David in 2 Samuel was standing on his roof and he saw her bathing. That's, this is what she was doing. She was fulfilling Leviticus chapter 15. Now, verse 25 is about irregular discharges from a woman. When a woman has a discharge of blood for many days at a time other than her monthly period or has a discharge that continues beyond her period, she will be unclean as long as she has the discharge, just as in the days of her uh, period. And, and this irregular uncleanness requires a sacrifice too. Now, this is what the passage says. And I've raised some of the ways that it would apply in ancient Israel, some of the, the things that it would mean for them. But what possibly, what does this mean for us 3,500 years later, except for the fact that it makes a rather uncomfortable public reading of Scripture? Um, what, what, huh, what are we supposed to learn from this? I think that this passage is dedicated to one very simple principle. I think this passage is dedicated to putting pleasure in its place. It wants it helps us by putting pleasure in its place. In his goodness, oh, in his goodness, God has given us many ways to experience pleasure. Think about it. God does not have eyes, but he made you with eyes and gave you an optic nerve, and every night he paints the sky with pink and red and orange so that you can look at it and enjoy it. God does not have ears, but he, he created your ear and shaped it just perfectly so that when the bird, which he also created, sings its song, you can hear that whistle and appreciate it. God does not have a nose, but he gave you one and he created roses so that you can smell them. He has no skin to be touched, but God has made sex and nerve endings that can be stimulated. There are pleasures everywhere to enjoy, but they, they are not ultimate pleasures. All of them are merely pointers to the ultimate pleasure of knowing God, or as Moses and the book of Revelation say, seeing God. That's why there's separation here in this text. There is separation of the Israelites from the sexually perverse practices of the Canaanites, and there's separation of those pleasures. The pleasure of sexual intimacy from the pleasure of fellowship with God. 
There is a joy that the Israelites were supposed to experience that comes from worship. And this passage argues that worship joy is better, it's unfading, it's, un- it's uh, satisfying in different, more important ways than the pleasure that comes from sexual intimacy. It's a passage that's trying to put pleasure in its place. I read most of my news online, and occasionally uh, one of the news sites I visit has a completely useless article on some new survey. (laughs) Probably thanks to some government grant, somebody has used their time to study something interesting like seven things people would sacrifice sex to enjoy. That's the headline. Uh, Seven things people say are better than sex. Um, I, I don't spend a whole lot of time reading those articles. Um, so I don't know if it, if it makes anyone's list, but Leviticus 15 is, says that worship is supposed to be on the list. Knowing God, following God, seeing God's beauty. And, and by putting physical pleasure in its place, this chapter, I think, reveals both our foolishness and our fallenness. Sometime in your life, you've seen a two-year-old with a quarter, Right? Two-year-old's got a quarter in his hand. <laughs> she looks at it. It's shiny. It's, she can feel it. It's hard. And, and it's, she knows. She's, she has enough experience that if you give this quarter to somebody, they'll give you something that you want more, like candy. She's got this quarter. It's a quarter. <laughs> now, some doofus will come along with five pennies in his hand. Right? Five shiny copper pennies and walk up to that two-year-old and, and, and say, look, I've got five of them. You've only got one of them. And, and if you have five and, and you jingle them around, they make sound. Can you do that with your one? I don't think you can. Look, would you like to trade these five for that one? Five is more than one, don't you know that? And the two-year-old will say, yeah, sure, all right, yeah, it's a good deal. It's two-year-old is, in that instance, a fool. Right Now, they're not foolish in a bad sort of way. They're just uneducated. They don't know better. But what about you? What do you say to an entire culture that has spent thousands of years trading copper pennies for quarters? Pursuing temporary, fading, ultimately disappointing pleasures for lasting joy, true fulfillment. Paul makes this exact same point in Romans chapter 1. This is not just foolishness, but this is evidence of our fallenness. I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 1. We're going to look at it. The page numbers are written on your note sheet if you need the help finding it. Otherwise, I want you to turn with me to Romans chapter 1. We're going to look at Romans and then we're going to look at a passage in Mark before we finish. But look at Romans chapter 1, verse 18. And and look at this trade that was made in this passage that the Apostle Paul talks about. Romans chapter 1, verse 18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness. Since what may be known about God is plain to them, because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made, so that people are without excuse. Verse 21. For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God, nor gave thanks to Him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and traded. 
They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like a mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Leviticus 15 is about sexuality in part. Look at verse 24. Therefore God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth, another trade word, they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the Creator who was ever praised. Forever praised. Amen. This is the worst trade that has ever been made. We're not talking quarters and pennies. We're talking about the image of the created things for God Himself. And we fall into this all the time. Brothers and sisters, I'm calling you to pursue what you have in Jesus Christ and to cultivate it and to love it and not to be duped for the trade. Oh, we are all the time though. We think that some new experience, some new attainment, some new level will finally bring us the pleasure, the fulfillment that we want, that we're seeking, and it doesn't work. When you're 15 years old, you can't wait to turn 16 because then you'll get to drive. And if you can drive, you are awesome. But then, probably within about 10 years, you're going to have a minivan, and no one's awesome driving a minivan. Someday, when you're 17, you're going to be 18, and then you're going to be an adult. And you can make your own decisions because you're an adult. And you have to pay your own bills. Someday, you're going to get married. And you can have all the sex you want when you get married because you're married. But then, then you find out in the, in the course of time that sex doesn't always work and someone gets sick and bodies fall apart. You will never look as good as you do on your wedding day. It's all downhill from there. <laughs> why do you think magazines advertise, you go to the grocery store, why, why do they magazines, the headlines on all of them is seven ways to impress, uh, to rock his world or whatever they are. Because there are people who have, are looking for ultimate cosmic sex and they can't find it because it doesn't exist in this world, in this broken world. Maybe if marriage doesn't provide ultimate satisfaction, then having children will. That, I'll be happy if I can have a child. And then there's things like diapers to be changed and late night feedings. A new car, it will rust. A vacation, it's going to rain. Retirement. You will spend all your time going to doctors. (laughs) Now, I'm not trying to be cynical uh, or deny that there are genuine blessings in all of these things, aren't there? There's genuine blessings in the, the, the freedom and joy that comes from driving a car. It's fun. And it's good to be 18 years old and to have adult responsibilities. And marriage is God's great blessing. And having children is wonderful. And retirement provides you with lots of good opportunities. But none of that is ultimate. You're looking in your hand for satisfaction here that that doesn't come. When are you going to stop falling for that lie and ignoring the God who has offered himself to you through Jesus Christ? All of life's physical pleasures are tastes. They're little samples of ultimate pleasure, which we will, uh, you'll not experience ultimate pleasure in this life, 
but the ultimate pleasure, knowing the one true God, and he gives you a little taste of it here and there everywhere. Now, how do I know this is true? Maybe, maybe I'm overselling this a little bit. Maybe, maybe you've been around the church for a, a, a long enough, and maybe you're thinking to yourself, you know, I've, I've been here for Sunday morning before. I've, I've experienced it. And I also have been at really good parties. And, and I, I've, I've seen some really beautiful women. And I've experienced some really uh, out-of-this-world highs. And, and I've tasted some really good, uh, really good shots. And I know what it's like to have a chunk of money in your pocket. And frankly, all those experiences were better than what happens on Sunday morning here. Are you, are you sure you're not overselling God here a little bit? Making promises that, that you, you can't fulfill? I want to show you one more passage of Scripture. I know our time is about done, but I just want to quickly walk you through one passage of Scripture. And I want you to turn with me to the Gospel of Mark, uh, chapter 5. And I want you to meet a woman whose story is set up for us by Leviticus, chapter 15. Mark, chapter 5, is where I want to direct your attention. It's just a little bit to the left of Romans, uh, and I hope you, you can find it. It's, it's, on, um, it's on page 1006 in your pew Bibles. Mark, chapter Five. Now, Jesus here in Mark chapter 5 is in a crowd of people and, and he's been asked to go to someone's house to uh, help a, a man's sick daughter. And verse 24, Jesus agrees to go of Mark chapter 5, so Jesus went with him. And a large crowd followed and pressed around him. And a woman was there who had been subject to bleeding for 12 years. She had suffered a great deal under the care of many doctors and had spent all she had Yet instead of getting better, she grew worse. Here's a story about this woman who had this bleeding problem. Twelve years. She knows about suffering. And she knows about separation. She's been unclean. And every object she touches becomes unclean. And every person she approaches becomes unclean. And she's desperate to get this situation fixed. But the text says she bankrupted herself. She spent everything she had and it didn't work. Everything just got worse. And she illustrates, I think for us, the the consequences of living in this broken world and trying to fix it with the pennies that you can find. You'll discover this. You'll discover pleasures will always get worse. They will always decline. If you give yourself over to it, you will always need more and it won't satisfy you the way you want. This woman has heard, though, about Jesus, and she takes this huge risk. Look at verse 27. When she heard about Jesus, she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his cloak because she thought, if I just touch his clothes, I will be healed. Immediately her bleeding stopped, and she felt in her body that she was freed from her suffering. At once Jesus realized the power had gone out from him. He turned around in the crowd and asked, Who touched my clothes? You see the people crowding against you, his disciples answered, and yet you can ask, who touched me? But Jesus kept looking around to see who had done it. Then the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came and fell at his feet, trembling with fear. She told him the whole truth. The reason this is a huge risk is because she's unclean. 
And if Jesus found out that she was unclean and had touched him, if anybody had found out how unclean she was, and there she was in the midst of this crowd, probably jostling other people, if any of them had found out, they could have turned on her. You wicked woman, you are unclean. Leave me alone. Get away from me. I am clean until you t- I was clean until you touched me. What is wrong with you? That's what they could have responded. That's how many crowds would have responded. This, in this culture in particular, this fragile, vulnerable woman. Jesus very easily and righteously so could have turned on her. Verse 34, he said to her, Daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. Whatever you turn to, whatever you're trusting in to make you happy, it will ultimately disappoint you. It cannot deliver on what it promises. And the good news of the Bible is that Jesus has come to rescue us. Think about it. The uncleanness separated this woman from everybody, everyone she knew from worship at the temple, but Jesus comes to touch unclean people, to rescue them, to heal them, to restore them. The pinnacle of his rescuing work, of course, occurred on the cross when he offered himself as the ultimate sacrifice for our sins. He shed the blood that we need to approach the Holy God. He is the mediator who welcomes all those who turn to him by faith for life and forgiveness. I'm not overselling God. I'm not overselling the reality of the ultimate satisfaction that comes to those who are his followers. I know life is hard. You're not going to experience ultimate joy in this life, but someday. I'm not thinking about what's going to make you happy for four hours. I'm thinking about your satisfaction for the next 50,000 years. Will you think about that? Jesus has come to rescue separated people, to rescue them, to find them, and he has come to put pleasure in its place. Let's pray, shall we? Oh Lord, how grateful we are to you for this woman and her faith. She who came, having heard about Jesus, to touch the hem of his garment and found from him healing, power, and gracious words. Father, there are people in the congregation this morning who are in particular feeling the uncleanness of their foolish choices. Pleasure is not in place in most of our lives and and they have sought it in, in various places, trying hard to get joy out of the pennies that they have gathered. Oh Lord, I, I thank you that the Lord Jesus has come and seeks and rescues people who are burnt out on their own pleasure, who have come to the end of themselves and realized how it disappoints. Father, we we pray for those that we know and love that you would uh, convict them and reveal to them the futility of the pursuit that they're on. We, We grieve to see them chasing after empty things. Thank you that uh, when we speak the name of Jesus and offer what he offers, we're not underselling who you are in your greatness and your goodness. 
Help us as a congregation, we pray, to put pleasure in its place and enjoy the foretaste of glory that is coming when we'll see our Savior face to face. It's in his name that we pray these things together, saying, Amen.